0: Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the podcast, we're talking about shingles and what you can do to prevent this often debilitating virus. How is your mental fitness and why is it important? Plus, think intimacy in a relationship isn't important? I've got some questions and I'm sure you do too for Dr. Carolyn Klein, a sex therapist, And registered psychologist. Also, hyperlipidemia often progresses without noticeable symptoms, yet it's a risk factor for heart disease. Individuals may not even be aware of the condition until they experience a heart related event. Do you know what your lipid levels are? The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. And now, Maureen's health headline Shingles is a viral infection that causes a very painful rash. It can last beyond the acute infection, and we call that post-herpetic neuralgia, and it's extremely painful. It can occur anywhere on your body, but it typically looks like a single stripe of blister th- that wraps around the left side or the right side of your torso, and it's caused by the virus, Shingle is caused shingles is caused by the virus that causes chickenpox, which lays dormant in your body. Former Vancouver broadcaster Tam- Tamara Stanners is speaking out and urging people to consider getting a certain vaccine to avoid an experience she just went through. Tamara Stanners is now recovering from shingles, and she's on the line to share her story. story. Good evening, Tamara. I can't talk tonight at all. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're doing
1: great. You're doing great. I like to say it's Tamara, like mascara. So many different ways of saying it.
0: (laughs) It's probably my Boston accent. I blame that on whenever I mispronounce something. (laughs) Tamara like mascara is on the line and and you know what you couldn't put mascara on could you given the the situation that you just went through tell us about getting shingles
1: okay well um, I guess the first part of it is I had no idea it was shingles I just thought it was dying Um, not just I actually thought it was dying the pain was incredibly extreme and it started out as um like neck and shoulder and back pain that I thought was the result of a fall that I'd had a week prior to the symptoms starting. Um, so I went to an osteopath to try and get some relief from the pain I was in, and then very rapidly the symptoms increased even more, and, um, and that's when I thought I was dying. I looked into the Internet, obviously, because that's what we do when we're not nurses or nurse practitioners or doctors. Dr. <laughs> and, Google. There you go. And Dr. Google told me terrible things about the things I thought I might have, like trigeminal neuralgia, which would be incredibly horrific because uh, it just never goes away. It's the kind of extreme pain that I was experiencing for the rest of my life, um, which I couldn't even fathom. And then I also thought I was having a stroke. There was that because the pain was so intense. I had these sharp, um, like, Red hot pokers being driven into my brain, all over the right side, um, sporadically. And, and you had the right. rash. You had the rash on your eye as well, didn't you, Tamara? Right, but it didn't show up right away. Like that was the thing. It's like I, I felt like I had these fire ants trying to escape the right side of my face, and all these, you know, these pokers in my brain, and the pain in my back and my shoulders. And it wasn't uh, for two more days. Uh, until the actual rash showed up and it went, started on uh, my cheek and then it went into my nose and then it was around my eyes, uh, in Uh my mouth, in my nose, around my ear, in my scalp as well.
0: It was Uh, just awful. And some people don't get that rash um, either. It it takes a long time uh, for that rash to come after the uh, painful symptoms occur um and so when did you figure out that it was shingles um so it was like two weeks ago uh and and i've had
1: this like the symptoms started about four days before i actually figured Uh out that it was shingles and i went into emergency in the middle of the night Uh, i couldn't sleep because the pain was too severe and my husband just happened to be awake too and he took me into the hospital where You know, they really just took one look at me and said, hmm, it looks to me like you have shingles. And I was so relieved at that point because it wasn't then trigeminal neuralgia or a stroke. Um, And that, I mean, I knew that it still could mean a very lengthy recovery. My uh, sister and brother and mom went through terrible battles with shingles. as did my grandma. But I, I also knew that it would eventually end, even if I was scarred, even if I still had some nerves nerve damage um, or pain, I knew that it would get better.
0: Mm -hmm. And you got early treatment effectively, did you, with um, antiviral medication? And that lessens the chance of complications. And I I mentioned the most common complication is post neuralgia, which is persistent pain that carries on once the rash goes away. And I've had a number of patients in my clinical practice who have had post neuralgia, Uh, They didn't come to see me for that, but happened to tell me their medical history, and that's what they had, and they were suffering tremendously. How are you doing right now? Well, it's still really
1: early, um, and I was just, I mean, today I was lying down, because I'm really tired, so I was having a rest, and... My right side of my, my my right arm is incredibly uh, sensitive right now. The nerves are very sensitive and and very cold. So I had it under, you know, the blanket and I felt something like crawling across my arm, like a big bug. Uh, And I ripped off the blanket. I mean, it wasn't a bug at all. It was my nerve doing something (laughs) weird. (laughs) Um, What if it was a bug? (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't a bug. It was just, you know, from a bug. And... So The the nerve pain is still there on my face and in my scalp, which is uh, really, it's very painful there. Um, And then I still get the sharp pains, but they've definitely like the sharp poker pains in my brain. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, instead of getting them like once every, you know, 10 seconds, they probably once every half hour. So that's incredible. Like that part of the pain um, is really subsiding and I'm so excited.
0: That. Mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. you're busy you're a writer a painter you do yoga you do voiceovers you have a great voice by the way um Don't you're into think music uh mm-hmm. thanks
2: <laughs> um
0: <laughs> most people think i'm siri <laughs> that i did Siri, and <laughs> I'll, I'll talk about that a bit later but anyway i found well, out today who does who did siri honor. but anyway <laughs> I wish. Anyway, um, I did find that out today, but nonetheless, um, you also (laughs) were, um, you directed the Squamish Constellation Festival. You're very, very busy. How much do you think that busyness and and maybe stress management contributed to that? I mean, were you at your optimal or were you, you know, what was life like prior to? Well, I mean, I was really uh, super healthy and I do Take care of my health
1: and like you know, doing the Pilates and the yoga. I actually swim in the ocean every day too. I find that incredibly therapeutic, and and uh, I feel like the fall was a big part of of what sort of unleashed my. You know, I guess it weakened me, um, and it, it just allowed for some stressors because I did have a couple of. To stresses happen, um, you know, with family members. That that I think, you know, in light of the fall then the stressors, I think I just got worn down. Um, and I don't mean to is, blame you in I'm
0: any way, trouble. but I'm yeah. just curious no. if you think that your, you know, your immune system was not quite as strong. Not not you. I don't mean to in, insinuate that yeah, you no, were weak I, by any stretch. Please. No, I hear you. Yeah. I I honestly feel like that was the reason for it. I knew,
1: I knew right away. Like, you know, because when I got hit and when I was diagnosed. I honestly was like, I don't get, I just don't get sick like that. I, I, and then I, I traced it back to where it started from. And for sure it was, you know, I just wasn't, I wasn't, uh, like I was
0: weakened. I was for sure. Um, your immune system, but (laughs) it's, uh, you know, I even wonder, I'm just curious, even you said you had a fall, like, Mm -hmm. I mean, even that when, when we're, you know, not at our optimal when, you know, our immune system is weak and we're not as sharp, you know, maybe that even was the precursor. Like is. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And the-, the fall was like, I mean, I was, I was going
1: to like the barbecue and I was going down some stairs and they were frosty and my feet just went out from under me. And I, you know, I splayed out like I did a full, like crazy mm-hmm. fall, but I was still able to get up, shake it off. And I didn't even really feel the symptoms, you know, right. for for a week because I I did all the stretches and I, you know, did some therapy. Like, I, I was really taking care of that. But um, I was also taking care of a whole lot of other people at that time. Like, right. a lot of people were with me, and I was looking after them as I tend to do. It's, it's my go to is to look after people. And I feel like that's, I should have probably been looking after myself more than I was, uh-huh. instead of looking after everybody else,
0: which and is even lesson when I've
1: learned from it.
0: My guest is Tamara Stanners, and we are talking about shingles, a viral infection that causes a very painful rash, and it's the result of chickenpox lying dormant in your body. But you don't have to have had chickenpox to get shingles. Tamara, thanks so much for staying on the line and for sharing your story. Mm -hmm. Appreciate it. I want a cookie after hearing the subway ad. (laughs) <laughs> anyway uh, sugar i don't think sugar is good for that post-herpetic i know it's pain, not pain. <laughs> not alcohol anything not. that's good for you is not anything that causes inflammation um right. anyway um so there's something that perhaps could have prevented this in fact it prevents mm-hmm. it in 90 percent of people um mm-hmm. is that and tell me what that is, and do you wish you had done it? What's your story around that one?
1: Yes, I wish I'd had the shingles vaccination i you know I was even talking to my son um my adult son just the day before my symptoms presented, and I said to him because he has uh he had the worst chicken box I've ever seen, and he also gets um, cold sores as do I and so with my family history and our own history his and mine with chicken pox and cold sores I was like honey you and I we need to go get our vaccine uh, shingles vaccine so we kind of made a pact on our walk that we we're going to do that but then the symptoms showed up the very next day and now I won't be able to get the vaccine for a year and when I can I will because I never want to have to experience shingles again.
0: And that's what anyone who experiences shingles says. And I'm sure you've inspired a lot of people to go out and get that shingles vaccine. Now I know it's different across the country where some provinces cover it. Some provinces don't. You're in British Columbia. um, They don't cover it. It's two, it's a two shot rash. uh, I mean, two shot um, injection and um, about, you know, four to six months apart. Uh, And it's, you know, it can be pretty expensive. I think two or $300. Um, Yeah. And Which is, you know, unfortunate because it's a preventive, it's such an inexpensive way to prevent potentially long-term complications and, you know, people miss work and miss out on their lives and, um, I mean, it really ought to be covered everywhere across the country. This is a simple one. But you went on social media and you suggested that people might get the... uh, Vaccination with the big V word, which a lot of people, which triggers a lot of people. People, you know, don't critically think. They don't um, involve rigorous and thoughtful processes of actively and adeptly conceptualizing, applying, analyzing, synthesizing. They just actually go overboard. So, what was the response to from online from some people when you posted your uh, story and your suggested preventive technique?
1: Well, first of all, I did do it as a public service announcement. I just felt like, you know, I was in so much pain, and I thought that if I could help just even one person by letting them know how terrible shingles are, um, you know, help one person just like who was maybe on the fence about the vaccine get it, then that was the reason I did it. I really didn't intend for it to blow up like it did, because on on TikTok it it has over 100,000 views. So um, having said that, the vast majority of people were incredibly kind, loving, positive, sending really, you know, kind messages of healing and also sharing their stories. And there's so many crazy shingle stories and vaccination stories. And then there were uh, the others. And they, I'd say it was a very small percentage, maybe three percent, who, you know, would call me a vaccine Nazi and Um, you know, criticized me for having a uh, shady immune system. And that's the only reason why I got the shingles. And, you know, they were angry and scared. And, you know, I I understand there's been a lot of misinformation and disinformation. And, you know, people have a lot of different opinions right now. But um, it was shocking to see the anger uh, Uh that came along with, with it, you know, because I wasn't suggesting by any means that people had to, or <laughs> I was just like, hey, if you want to avoid something super painful, I advise you to get the vaccine.
0: Here's a yeah. good tip. Yes, exactly. But, you know, you make a good point because there's so much misinformation and disinformation all over social media. And much like you did a lot of people go to Dr. Google. A lot of people, you know, re- see things on social media by non-healthcare professionals who are on there just trying to make a buck or sell a program, m- over-promising, under-delivering, all around healthcare, in part because, you know, some people might not be able to afford it. Some people might be too busy to go to the doctor. There's long wait lists uh, to see doctors. But, you know, doctors do fit people in and and doctors are seeing tons of patients, believe you me, Mm -hmm. (laughs) they're seeing, and they're not on social media because they're too busy to get on social media. (laughs) So it's too bad because people, you know, evaluate information that is derived from social media versus experience or observation, reasoning. and, And so people get upset and you know believe one thing that they hear which of course it's been politicized but um yes. you know unfortunately we're out of time but i've loved having you on and um i'm glad that you're feeling better thank and, you me too and continue on this um method of good health any final uh words for people out there who might be suffering with this right now or people who are considering uh-huh. they're on the fence about the vaccination well, um, I can
1: say, I mean, first of all, if you are suffering with shingles right now, my heart goes out to you. Um, again, I wouldn't wish it on anybody. It's, it's just terrible. If you've had chicken pox, I would 100% advise you to get the shingles vaccine. It is, you know, I just, again, it's a terrible thing to have to go through. Um, and for those of you who haven't had chicken pox, I did hear a story about a friend of mine who hadn't had chicken pox. But after seeing what I went through, Went to get the vaccine, and she's, you know, had some extreme reaction to it. But most other people have had just sore arms. So
0: I mean, you know, yeah, you make a good point. The the shingles vaccine is very painful, like really Mm -hmm. sore arm. People can really feel like they're down and out with the flu and muscle aches. And anyway, I wish we had more time tomorrow, but we will certainly follow your story and uh, wish you all the best of health. Well, thank you so much. And thanks for having me on the show, Maureen. I'm going to keep listening. There's so many good things coming up. Well, the season is upon us, isn't it? At home, in the workplace, in our communities, classrooms, far and wide, in the media, online, and in the neighborhood stores, of course. This time of year can inspire festive gatherings, activities of joy, togetherness, Santa Claus, heartfelt memories with family and friends. For some, though, the holidays can be a challenging time of stress, adversity, and a difficult trigger of strong emotions, pressures, or even traumatic experiences. Mental health is so important, but it's particularly important at this time of year, which is why I've invited Dr. Shahana back. She's a professional speaker and family physician who empowers individuals and organizations to understand mental health's importance She uses emotional literacy and provides clarity for personal and organizational well-being. Thank you so much for coming back to the program, Dr. Shahana. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me back. You are so welcome. This is a tough time of year for a lot of people and you know people can be, can become unhinged at this time of year this isn't you know people are grieving which we're going to be talking about that a little bit later on in the program uh, at this time of year that makes the holidays so difficult if you've lost somebody th- especially the first year so especially this year um and and so this is a very hard time even those who have you know who are pretty much ticking along throughout the year you know this time of year can you know, unlevel people. It can there is so much stress, pressures, shopping, school, all all sorts of things. Um so last week you talked about the optimal health pyramid. Can we uh, briefly review that uh for the listeners? And and I also want to just say to the listeners, if you Have any questions? The number to call 1-877-399-9898. Call or text 1-877-399-9898. If you're having difficulty with this season, if you're experiencing some issues with your mental health as it relates to the holidays or or it doesn't, um, whatever the case may be, we're happy to answer your questions. Thanks so much again, Dr. Shahana. Um, if you uh, could just review absolutely. that. absolutely, Yes, Thank no, you. for
3: sure. And you brought up such a good point too. I always say, you know, that sometimes it is not the most wonderful time of the year. And a great um, formula to keep in mind is that of what I think of stress. You know, when you think of stress, you think of expectations times your perception. So it's very similar to, you know, when someone's planning for a wedding, when someone's planning for the birth of a first child We tend to set that bar so incredibly high. And Christmas is no exception to that as well, right? It's having that perfect Uh present, that perfect tree, the perfect family gathering. So stress is simply, is it wanting or is it expecting things to be different than they are, right? And when we have that bar of expectations that's so incredibly high, then all of the outcomes are on the what. And we have no control over the what. You don't have control over your certain relatives who may or may not make it onto your Christmas, you know, your Christmas list. You don't have uh-huh. control over so much. You've got control over the how, right? The how that you show up, and what you brought up so nicely right now was that optimal health pyramid. Looking, that's at the foundation of that pyramid is what I call think better. So exactly this: how do you train your brain in order to? because we're constantly categorizing and summarizing information in our brain. So how do we actually perceive and think about stress, the things that are coming to us, and that we don't want them to come to us, but the things that are coming to us anyways. And part of that is understanding what to do with all of these emotions that are coming up during the holiday season as well.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, so much can come up. And, of course, the lead-up uh, into the holiday season or, or the pressure um, of the holiday season, all of the holiday parties turning up, looking good. Uh, you know, maybe you yeah. had, pr- have problems at home. Maybe there's things going on in your life. You know um, we were talking uh, at a dinner party last night about somebody who had recently died by suicide and, and how yeah. they, Uh, at the end of the service, they had said, you know, if you're struggling, reach out, reach out to somebody. Of course, we have the new 988 um, line in Canada um, now, which is one thing, but, you know, people don't pretend that they're not okay. They pretend that they are okay. And there's such a shame associated with saying things aren't going well for me. I'm not doing great. You know, can you help me? And, and, And also I think people... You have to be careful, correct me if I'm wrong, who you choose to share that information with. Because somebody might say, oh, for crying out loud, you have everything in the world, you know. I mean, that's what people couldn't understand about this particular person. They had everything going for them. They were everything to everybody. They were amazing. They were, you know, had the fullest life possible uh, that one could imagine. You know, they lived the life of an, you know, that an 85-year-old might have lived, you know, by 50 Exactly.
3: Um, And yeah, and that is often the case, right? It's those stories that are going to surprise you. But what you mentioned right there was that idea that if we need to spread one thing this season that we need more of, it's not the viruses and bacteria that are going around. It's the idea of self-compassion. And what you just said there was so perfect, because what we end up doing is we end up comparing ourselves to others. Well, like, look, you have more than I do. Look, you on Instagram, on Facebook and all of these platforms, you seem to be doing so well. But self-compassion is the exact opposite of that. It's, right, it's learning to be kind to ourselves and meeting ourselves where we at, are at at that present time. And no one would talk to the, us the way that we talk to ourselves. If we caught ourselves talking to the way we talk to ourselves, the way we talk to our kids, or even our neighbors, we're often so much more mean, so much more harsh, so much more critical when it comes to ourselves, too. So if, we, if you hear nothing else from this conversation, it's that the element of self-compassion, which really seems to be the road, if you listen to all of these types of podcasts and read these books on changing your mindset and thinking better, a core element is how to learn to be kinder to yourself.
0: And and there's so much that we're mean to ourselves about. Let's just break it down a little bit. What I see in my clinical practice, body image, finances, Mm -hmm. relationship, children's success, who their children are going to marry, (laughs) Um, aging. Um, yeah. medical conditions, um, you know, having come from a particular family, ma- making the wrong choices in life, living with regret. There are so many things that people, and I mean, that's not an exhaustive list by any stretch of the imagination, um, but there are so many things that we beat ourselves up about. when Our house isn't as big as the neighbors or our cars aren't as nice. You know, so much comparison goes on when to be honest, nobody knows what kind of a car you drive. No, I mean, nobody knows you're living. I hate to say that. People are thinking about themselves. People are speaking Thank negatively you. to themselves. They're not Thank thinking you. about you. It's
3: that lovely phenomenon that when you see a photo of your family or an extended family, let's be honest, who's the first person you look at? You look at yourself right? Mm -hmm. We all inherently just care about (laughs) ourselves, right? We love the gossip and we love, but that is, I like to call it, you know, it's like that two second headline for what's happening to the neighbors. And then you're off to the next thing as well. That's how our minds work too. But that's so important. So beautifully said. Here's another really quick tip. Always, should, and never. If you are saying these to yourself, always, should, and never, I call those the mental sand traps. That's when you know that you are having a lot of black and white thinking and you're not allowing those shades of gray. I am always fill in the blank. I am never fill in the blank or my favorite. I should, we all should all over ourselves way too often.
0: Absolutely. Those are such great words not to be using. And and I see (laughs) in my clinical practice, you know, in relationships, you know, it's also a good idea to think, am I using that in my relationship? You always do this. You always do that. You should have done that. You never do this. Those are, uh, yes. you know, uh, the kiss of death in a relationship yes. for for <laughs> exactly. utilizing those those words. And that's, of course, when we blame other people, that's all that people are doing is blaming somebody else for their own troubles because it's it's also so hard to look at ourselves. It's so hard to be self-aware. But you have a strategy for being more self-aware that can be very helpful for people. Can you tell us a little bit about that, please?
3: Absolutely. Like the bedrock of emotional literacy really is how to become more self-aware. And most people actually think they are really self-aware until you start asking that question, do you pause before you react to your emotions. You know, we do one of three things with our emotions. We either suppress them. I love suppressing my emotions. We deny Uh we even have them, or we blame, just like you said. So the formula to become more self-aware is so simple, and it's S cubed, or three S's. The reason is that every single emotion gives you a gift, and three gifts to be exact. It leaves you with a sensation in your body, It tells you or sells you a story in your head and it also acts like an emotional compass pointing you in the direction of what you actually care about or value because if you didn't care about it, you really probably wouldn't have an emotion to that in the first place. So that's the high level. It leaves you three gifts, what you feel in your body, the sensation, the story, the narrative that's going on in your head. And imagine holding that emotional compass. So S, the last one, is significance. What do I actually care about?
0: Right. Those are very um, challenging questions, I would imagine, for people. You know, I mean, I've written them down here because I want to remember them. What you're feeling. So so maybe somebody is feeling heart palpitations or anxiety or discomfort or shortness of breath or difficulty swallowing. Those are the kind of symptoms that you're referring to.
3: Right. Exactly. If any one of us had to walk down a dark alley in a place that we don't know, Before our brain can even think about it, we already have the sweaty palms and the racing heartbeat and the shortness of breath and everything else you mentioned on that list. Because anxiety can be very visceral. And anybody who's ever, you know, wanted to emerge with a panic attack knows that it feels exactly like that, right? It feels like someone's sitting on your chest, too. Some people with anxiety might not have those sensations, but it's equally, and I want to underline this point, equally as important to recognize if you feel nothing, If you Uh have a numbness, if you have a blunting, you know, I think we're living in a age where everything is just fine. You're fine. Are, are Are you actually fine? Right. So the absence of feeling that sensation is also information as well. But we call that like that disabandonment from your body. It's important that you just really start to check in with yourself. Even when you're driving, one of the first things I try to do is that can you, actually drop your shoulders down just a little bit more and not Uh wear your shoulders as earrings like i often do right where they're way hunched there because you're not even taking a breath before you're zooming off to the next errand or next place so having or when you're brushing your teeth these little kind of stops along the way where you can go well actually how am i feeling without using the word fine
0: we are talking mental health, uh, especially at the holidays, and optimal health pyramid with Dr. Shahana. Her website is drshahana.com. Thank you so much for staying on the line with me, Dr. Shahana. My pleasure. And right now we're specifically talking about her strategy for being more self-aware. And being self-aware is so critical to having a mentally healthy life. If you have any questions or comments, the number to call is one Ninety-eight. That's one eight seven seven 9898 You can call or text me on the text line. All right, Doctor Shahana, we were talking about the feelings in uh, one's body as uh, part one of the S cubed um, strategy, and that's the sweaty palms, the heart racing, the fear, feeling of doom. Um, any of those anxiety type symptoms that you might feel. So being aware of that. And then the next is moving on to the narrative. And is that the narrative in someone's head? That, Tell me that's about right. that. That's the that's story that you're actually, you know, telling yourself. But I love to say that you're not
3: telling it to yourself. You're selling it to yourself. And anybody who's recently might have had a argument with their better half, their spouse, Knows that when you are in that argument, you have now had a law degree, basically, and are selling yourself as that you've done nothing wrong, that you are completely in the right. We've all been there. I hope you're nodding your heads along with this, because that internal Uh (laughs) narrative can be so powerful. It really can make you look like the hero. That, you know, and I think this can also be that mentality where people really feel the world is against you. Now, this idea first came to me as I used to, you know, wa- watch Matlock growing up. And it was this idea that Matlock, as you know, was a lawyer, and there would be this woman usually sitting in the courtroom as a typographer and typing out exactly, you know, what that was, what was going on during this debrief here. And that's exactly what's happening in your brain there is somebody who's always narrating every step of the way. And I once had a 70-year-old patient one time at the clinic, and I explained this idea, and I remember his eyes just literally felt like a light bulb came on going, oh, my goodness, like I had never connected those dots. So the sooner that we realize that everybody has this inner roommate, this inner narrative, this inner radio station, I like to call it as well, you might not have control over the station, but what you do have control over is the dial, right? Turning Uh the volume up and down, up and down, and with time and with counselling and with practice, that's how you get to change the station.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, I, I see this in my clinical practice quite often, especially with couples, um, sometimes people will say anything to win an argument. That's oh, part of their yes. sales pitch to their head, isn't it?
3: <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I love that. Exactly. And you know, sometimes people will tell me, well, I don't really do well at sales. I'm like, actually, no, I think we all are really good at sales because you've told yourself that there's, once again, always, never, and should I'll Uh never get that. I'll never get that job. I'm always rejected. I should have done this more, you know, and I work with a lot of youth. and, And it's interesting because that voice, that voice who is your narrative, of course, is you. But I always like to say it's colored by the people that you perceive as experts in your life. So this mm-hmm. great little test is like, imagine you're at the top of a diving board and you ha- we've all been there, right? You don't want to jump off, but there's a line of the people behind you who is telling you that you've got this, you can do this. That voice that's whispering that to you often has colored your own internal narrative as well. And vice versa, the person who's saying, you know, you're worthless, you're not never going to amount to anything. That voice is also there as well.
0: So it's important right. to
3: identify all the players.
0: Uh, absolutely. And, you know, we'll, on uh, an upcoming segment, we'll get into why we do this. <laughs> Unless you can tell me quickly, why do we do this? <laughs> I'll never get the job. The house will never sell. The kids will never graduate from high school. You know, this, they'll, they'll never pass this course. And it kind of comes back to that expectation,
3: that horizontal line that we set, too. Because if I set the bar super low for myself, then I've got a less chance of failure because if I, I'm never going to amount to anything when, when I don't, it's confirmation bias, right? It's that idea that, look, I told you, I told you I couldn't parallel park, which is my common confirmation bias in my head, <laughs> but I can't fit into that parking myself. So that's often <laughs> usually what's going on in my mind, but uh, that that's for another time.
0: It's amazing how many times we might say this to ourselves during the day though, you know? Yeah. Oh gosh. Yes. And every time yeah. you don't
3: do it or don't act on it, all you've done is put another tally mark to go look there. I showed you that you're not worth it. You can't do it. And why bother trying?
0: Right. And, you know, I always say confidence is sexy. Is this, is the sexiest thing? Is, is this, uh, you know, kind of, a. uh, an, Uh, You know, a score of how self confident one is? Are there those people that are just like, I can parallel park? I mean, I suppose there are those that can't parallel park and then claim that they do and then (laughs) hit the curb (laughs) and the car. This is
3: true. This this is true. This is true, right? Yeah, I think confidence is part of it. I think humility is actually equally as part because by being humble, it actually allows you to learn, right? Mm -hmm. Having that beginner's mind, having that feeling that I'm actually open to new experiences. It's the people who are really closed off, walled off, feel like, and that once again, it goes back to that feeling that everybody else has has it going on except me. It starts Uh by feeling that you are comparing instead of connecting with other people. And loneliness and isolation only makes that feeling more volatile.
0: It certainly does. We only have a few minutes left. So I don't I don't mm-hmm. want to forget about the emotional compass. Can you please describe yeah. that and just quickly for your review? Oh, emotional compass. We have one minute left. Go ahead. Oh got <laughs> it, got it,
3: got it. All, I, all I'll basically say is emotions tell you two things. They tell you to either approach something or avoid something. Emotions are not stumbling blocks. They are pieces of information that you can use. And next time you look at a paint palette, you'll never look at it the same way because those emotions, there's room for all of the emotions, good, bad, and otherwise. They're just uncomfortable or, or comfortable. So paint with all the colors of, of the palette and realize that anger and frustration are actually sending you signals and clues as to what you care about and value.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Shahana. I really appreciate it. S3, feel it in your body, the narrative and the emotional compass, drshahana.com. I'm delighted to talk about this segment because when consulting a sex therapist about the importance of intimacy in your marriage or relationship, it's essential to ask questions that help you understand, address concerns and improve your overall connection. I have some questions, as I'm sure you do, and there's no one better to answer those than Dr. Carolyn Klein. She's a sex therapist and registered psychologist. She's co-founder and co-director of the West Coast Center for Sex Therapy in Vancouver, Canada. Her clinical work involves assisting individuals, couples, and other partnership configurations to build and strengthen sexual and relational intimacy, overcome sexual shame, pain and anxiety, and bring more joy and curiosity into sexuality. She also regularly provides workshops and presentations to the general public designed to provide accurate information and challenge unhelpful ideas about sex. Good evening, Carolyn. Good evening, Maureen. It's lovely to be speaking with you. Oh, so nice to have you with me. I should say Dr. Klein. Um, Not at all. The (laughs) the doctor is in, (laughs) and I really appreciate that. This is such a comprehensive, complex, challenging subject. I mean, so many people have issues relating to sex in their relationship. My, my first question is, What is intimacy important in a relationship and why is it so important? Mm-hmm. Great question. So my answer is
2: intimacy is critical for our relationships. I always really love what Dr. Esther Perel says, the famous sex therapist, where she says the quality of our lives is determined by the quality of our relationships. And intimacy, whether it's sexual intimacy, whether it's emotional intimacy, you know, intimacy is really how close we and, and familiar we are to someone else. And sexual intimacy happens to be one of the forms of intimacy that partnerships often put a lot of value on so that they don't feel like roommates. Um, it's a shared activity that they often will not share with anyone else so it's very exclusive to that partnership and so intimacy is so important for us to feel like we are loved just the way we are that our partners know us and we know them that we have this more exclusive bond with them.
0: Mm-hmm. And what are some of the common challenges couples face in maintaining intimacy, especially as the years go on and the boredom may rise with the same person, um, which is a common complaint I see in my clinical practice, and how can people overcome those? Yeah, Yeah.
2: so I, I will say the very first biggest
0: problem or hurdle
2: we have is that we are still very much in a place in, in most societies where we don't talk openly about sex which makes it really hard for partnerships, couples to actually evolve their sexual intimacy for it not to become stale and boring because they don't talk very openly about it. And like you're saying, the problem is it becomes very stale whenever we do anything over and over and over again the same way. So one of the things I often will say to my clients and when I'm giving talks to the public is I say that desire in the brain works the same for food as it does for sex, as it does for watching a movie. And so I always say that, you know, I love sushi. Sushi is one of my favorite foods. But if I win a gift certificate that allows me to have sushi from my favorite restaurant delivered to me every night for the next five years it's not going to take me probably more than five days before I start to get tired of having that same sushi. And so if couples do the exact same thing sexually in the same way, at the end of the night, they brush their teeth, they wash their face, they climb into bed, uh, they do things in the same order, they kiss here, touch there, over time it's really hard for the brain to desire the same thing repeatedly. So the key is for couples to communicate and the key is for couples to find ways within their morals and values to bring in novelty and newness, just like they do with the non-sexual parts of their intimacy.
0: Just Uh like you might not
2: go to the same place every year to travel, you don't want to go to the same place sexually every time you're together with your partner.
0: And, you know, it's hard to believe, but it's 2023 and sex is still a taboo subject and there's so much shame associated with it. And people are so embarrassed to talk about it. This is what I see. And this, this is people, you know, thirties, forties, fifties, sixties, seventies, well, by eighties, they might start to realize that Mm -hmm. it's okay to talk about. Um, but it's a hard thing for couples to, um, talk about, uh, even with, uh, a clinician, a, a sex therapist, a healthcare provider, a physician. Um, and it's equally as hard, if not harder, to talk about sex with their own partners. Yet this is the most intimate relationship. Why is that? Yeah, such a, a
2: huge question. It's a great question. And I think it's again, because we don't talk about it enough societally, people don't know if they are normal for what they desire or don't desire for what their body does or doesn't do. You know, because we don't talk about openly, everyone's wondering, am I normal? And if I share this, will my partner be appalled? Will they still respect me? Is this okay? And therefore, they keep it hidden because, of course, they don't want to, you know, lose the person who is most important to them in their lives. Um, so I think you're right. Many times we call it intimacy, and yet I often say that sex is sometimes the least intimate thing a partnership does. They know each other so well of what they want in retirement and how they grew up, but they have no idea how they each are actually uh, thinking about sex, wanting sex, etc.,
0: Exactly. This is a question that um, I get in my clinical practice quite a bit. And it's around um, porn, the use of porn. Um, you know, men and women both view porn, but oftentimes, uh, somebody typically in the relationship, if it's a heterosexual relationship, the the woman considers, um, the, the man is ashamed that he may view porn, and the woman considers that cheating. What are your thoughts on on that? There we have a breakdown in communication. I understand that, and and kind of an understanding around it. and And there's no talk about this. It may be that uh, the woman suspects it, um or the husband has been caught, or the male partner has been caught or whatever. And there it can blow up a relationship. Mm-hmm. It definitely can. I see those cases all the time in, in
2: our office. You're absolutely right. And I think, you know, just to rewind for a moment to what you were saying, I think you've hit the nail on the head. It, you know, when that happens, either there has never been a conversation in the first place and someone will say, well, I didn't consider that a breach, and the other person says, well, how could you not consider it a breach? You were doing it in privacy Or it clearly was a breach. There had been a promise not to. And, of course, any breach is going to be destructive for a relationship. But if we, for a moment, put the breach aside and just talk about the insecurity that, as you're saying, it's often many women who are concerned about pornography more than the male partners are. And for many women, it's, it's because porn is so fictional and to to think that their partner is becoming aroused to something that doesn't necessarily look or act like they do because it's a fictional representation can feel very threatening for a lot of women. It can feel very scary if they feel like their partner is turning to pornography rather than coming to them or it can bring up their body image concerns. So we've got not only the potential breach of a promise or a commitment But we also have that porn is not an accurate representation. And if we don't talk openly enough about that and what it means that this, if it's a man, why he's looking at pornography, what it means for him, uh, because we see so many reasons that people will use pornography. But it often gets all lumped into one in these distressing moments, which is I'm not good enough and you're looking somewhere else. And
0: that's really hard for people. Very difficult. And something that you mentioned, you said, um, you know, why isn't he coming to me? Oftentimes I see patients with low sexual desire for a variety of reasons, um, but uh, they they don't actually want, uh, they don't accept the advances of their partner, shall I say. And so the partner often turns to pornography. Um, and so this is another issue where when low sexual desire pervades the relationship and, and is the elephant in the room. Um, that, you know, how do you, what do you suggest um, for people to deal with that? And I suppose it's dealing with the sexual desire, (laughs) but I'll let you answer that. Yeah,
2: yeah, great question. I mean, um, I'll try and keep the answer short because it is, in many ways, the biggest bulk of the work that I do. And so it's Uh a huge topic, but I think it's understanding what does someone mean by low desire? And what I mean by that is, Is it that they're just not desiring the kind of intimacy that's on offer? You know, is it always that it's at the end of the day, it's for, you know, in this case, maybe a woman who's got young children, she's also working, she's exhausted, and the only time they have is at 10.30 at night when she's exhausted, and that's when her male partner initiates, and so it gets called low desire, but actually the conditions are really just not conducive for her. And so is it that it is a desire problem, or is it that it is a context problem, and that maybe? we can actually tweak some things and figure out some different ways that they can be intimate where suddenly she is in the mood. On the other hand, it is also the case that for some people, sexuality is not huge for their quality of life, so they don't crave it. And they would rather watch their Netflix show. They would rather read their book, or they'd rather play Scrabble with their partner. And so I think it usually is, how do we do a deep dive into why she's not interested? And also, again, what, as you're saying, what is the pornography to him? Is that, to him, a solution to the problem that he's got no sexual intimacy with his female partner? So first is understanding it, and then seeing... Is this something that we can actually fix? Is this something that is truly a desire discrepancy or a context issue?
0: Dr. Carolyn Klein is my guest. She's a sex therapist and registered psychologist over at the West Coast Center for Sex Therapy in Vancouver, British Columbia. Her work involves assisting individuals, couples and other partnership configurations to build and strengthen sexual and relational intimacy. And that's exactly what we're talking about. Thanks so much for staying on the line, Dr. Klein. My pleasure. Um, Speaking of pleasure, we are speaking about that. (laughs) Uh, We'll talk about that in a minute. But um, let's talk quickly about scheduling sex. Uh, People are busy today, busy lives. Lots of people have to work inside and outside of the home. Um, A lot of women are doing the lion's share of the work. Um, We are scheduling everything these days. Um, Many apps to assist us with that should be we be scheduling sex. Uh, yes, but with a caveat. So,
2: so the, the short answer is absolutely, like you were just saying, there is no social activity that we don't schedule. We schedule when we're going to go to the gym. You know, it's not like my friends just show up at the door and say, "Kate, it's time to go out for dinner. We've scheduled that, you know, days or even weeks in advance. So how are we going to have this other social activity if we don't put it in our social calendar? The caveat to that is that I always say to my clients that it is not hot to say, okay, Friday night, 6 o'clock, pants off, we have to go. Um, That's, you know, pressure and it feels like duty. So when I say scheduling sex, what I really mean is scheduling time to connect, just like you did early on in dating. You schedule time so that you make sure you have your shower and you feel good in your body and you come with your breath fresh and you you, you spend time talking to your partner and connecting over dinner or over a movie or whatever it is, so that probability wise, you have a higher percentage that it will lead to sexual intimacy. Not every time, but, you know, a, a much greater percentage than if you're just waiting for sexual desire to fall from the sky while you're vacuuming the house and dealing with emails. So we do need to schedule time for intimacy,
0: yes. We certainly do. I mean, so I had so many responses to that um, story that I put on about are you actually really living if you're not scheduling sex and so many messages saying, do people schedule sex? You're kidding. We schedule sex. Sex should be scheduled. I mean, it was unbelievable. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. it's a novel concept for a lot of people. But schedule intimacy, says the sex therapist, Dr. Carolyn Klein. Um, Let's talk about desire. Uh, people think that desire comes first, especially after, you know, they, they still believe in this concept after 10, 15, 20 years of of a relationship or a marriage. Tell us about desire. Hmm. Yeah, you're exactly right. That was the
2: long-held thinking that desire should inherently be kind of coursing through the body as sort of a biologically driven experience. And we really know, and in large part, the work of Dr. Rosemary Basson um, from Vancouver, although originally from the UK, um, she's really changed throughout the world the way that we think about desire and moving from this model of what we called spontaneous desire, now to the idea that many people, and it seems to be particularly true for many women, um, experience instead what she termed responsive desire. And as the name implies, responsive desire gets triggered in response to various different Uh, really important pieces being in place that lead the brain to say, you know what, I think sex would really, really uh, be a wonderful idea right now. So now we know that, in fact, women will often experience arousal, so blood flow to their genitals, um, well before they actually experience sexual desire. And that desire really comes when we put the right pieces in place, which goes right back to the scheduling, intimacy, you know, feeling good in our body, being showered, having our nice breath, all that kind of stuff. So yes, desire is no longer thought of as purely spontaneous.
0: And I think a lot of people come into my clinical practice with that idea that, you know, I I don't have any sexual desire because, you know, I don't feel it initially at first. And, you know, and when I do explain that responsive desire, that does speak to a lot of women. Um, You know, we still have this taboo and this shame uh, and a double standard for around sex for men and women. It's okay for men to have sex with as many people as they want uh, in, in a way. Um, but for women, there's a, there's a shame certainly that's associated with it. And, and one concept uh, that relates to sex and, and sexuality and intimacy is the concept of pleasure. We don't talk about pleasure. In fact, I gave a talk at a high school Um, recently and they said you're the first person to talk about pleasure with us Mm -hmm. Um, and so why don't we talk about pleasure especially as it relates to uh, female sexuality Mm -hmm. I love that you were speaking at a high
2: school it's wonderful you're totally right Maureen you're totally right that pleasure has not been part of the story for women's sexuality in history and in fact um, I often will say, and I don't think I'm the only one who said it, that most women have had sex more for the pleasure of, for, of others than for the pleasure for themselves. And that really needs to change. We right now do not raise young girls to think about sexuality as a pleasurable activity. In fact, most young girls grow up, um, once they kind of go through puberty, being told, you know, sex might hurt the first few times. Mm-hmm. Um, most most girls do not learn about the parts of their genitalia that are actually involved in pleasure. They only hear about the vagina. And And so we really have such a long way to go to bring that message that sexuality should be equally pleasurable for women, for everyone, Um, and to talk about how women can actually experience that, to talk about the importance of lubrication, for example, the importance of exploring their own body before someone else does. These are all really critical to that piece of pleasure being a part of a woman's experience.
0: Absolutely. And fast forward to perimenopause and menopause, I cannot tell you how many women present to my clinical practice having given up their sex lives because of vaginal dryness, painful sex, mm-hmm. dysperiunia, having no question about it, just no thought, just thinking, that's it, it's over. My, my right. intimate life is finished. And that's not the case, is it? No, no. And and yeah, exactly. Throughout women's lives, they keep getting
2: this message of it's okay that it hurts or just don't do it if it hurts, rather than how do we help you to
0: experience it in a pleasurable way? Mm-hmm, exactly. And you know, one thing, I mean, I'm, I've got the record for recommending low dose localized estrogen therapy um, for women in my mm-hmm. clinical practice. <laughs> and mm-hmm. um, anyway, it's because it's so many women need it. Dr. Carolyn Klein, thank you so much. Our time is up, I'm sorry to say. Um, How can people get in touch with you?
2: Yeah, so on Instagram, it's uh, at Dr. Spelt D R and then Carolyn Klein. My name has a strange spelling, no E at the end. Or through the West Coast Center for Sex Therapy, www.Westcoastsextherapy.com.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much for your great work. We'll get you back and continue this conversation because there's so much to talk about. Thank you so much.